Drama, drama, drama. One of the all-time requested guests, Andy Mantis, is on the pod today as part of our Pride lineup in the summer of drama. In addition to a sickening slew of upcoming guests, we're also selling limited edition summertime merchandise, including slim can koozies, embroidered hats, gorgeous wine tumblers, and even some Pride shirts. All are available via our link tree. Consider supporting the pod that way, or by joining our exclusive subscriber platform, Patreon, for $5 a month to get bonus episodes every single week this summer, access to Instagram close friends, and our devotion. All right, it's time for the show, Karen Cartwright. Press play. Curtain of an hour in. It's time to take spin. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got nom? They option no. Oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say no more. Drama. Drama. Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, love, and life in, in New, New York, York City, City and, and the, the world. world. I'm Connor McDowell. And I am Dylan McDowell. Connor, how the hell are you? We we are nearly through with Pride Month, as crazy as it sounds. I'm unwell. Oh. I'm fully unwell. I don't think I'm going to make it to the end, Dylan. I think we just need a break. 15 months of quarantine did me dirty. I know. In preparing. Like, this is the month when life is happening again, and I, I wasn't ready. I know, I wasn't but ready. it's been fun as hell. Oh my God, so fun. And the episodes we've been releasing have been so fun. And the merch that we just announced has been so fun. You're rocking some merch now. I am, yes. The Drama Drama Fucking Drama t-shirt available now via the link in the bio. And, you know, we also finally got to see In the Heights, which was unreal. At long last. You know, I think when we launched this podcast, the trailer dropped right right around then. And we were all like, oh my God, it's going to be the movie of the summer. And here we are a year and a half later. What did you think? I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. I sobbed throughout. And I think that if anyone wants the rest of our thoughts, they should subscribe to our Patreon. Dylan, that was so clever of you to do just now. I started to get all business oriented on everyone. I was I was just about to start raving about how obsessed I am with Anthony Ramos and how I want I want to have his babies. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Yeah, you can you can feel that way. He's perfect. His freckles he was perfect in that movie. Is he too hot to be Usnavi? I'll just leave that for the listeners to decide. No. Okay. Let's dive in because, you know, as as we were saying, Pride Month is rolling along. We've been gagged by our guests and we have a queer icon here with us today. We do. One of a very visible bicon, in fact. Ooh. And it's someone near and dear to our hearts for like over a decade now. So whenever we have someone from this camp, I always say it's like family, even though they didn't know we were family. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Chosen family, Rina Sawayama mm-hmm. vibes. Wait, have you heard, oh, yeah. heard that song? She does with Elton John. So good. Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. Okay. Why don't you bring in our guest? Here we go. Our guest today is an actor, singer, writer, composer, and is regularly named in Out Magazine's list of the 100 most compelling LGBT people of the year. Like only a select number of the legendary children before him to grace the pod, he's one of the original cast members of the first national tour of Spring Awakening, starring as Hanshin. He later reprised that role in the Deaf West production he co-conceived with his Tony-nominated husband, 
slash director Michael Arden performing it in LA and on Broadway. Our guest recreated Marius in the most recent Broadway revival of Les Miserables, for which he received a Broadway.com Audience Choice Award for Breakthrough Performance. He toured as Bach and Wicked and has starred in Carrie, Ragtime, The Who's Tommy, Parade, The View Upstairs, Bent, and more. If you don't know him from any of those extraordinary credits, you'll surely re remember him as we all do, as Kyle Bishop in the second season of NBC's Smash. He also starred as the Pied Piper in The Flash on The CW, Anger Management, Chasing Life Gone, Dolly Parton's Heartstrings on Netflix, and much more. He's part of the Jonathan Larson Project, where he brought to life previously unheard music by the late musical theater writer. As an author, he's written the Backstagers book series, as well as the musical theater piece, burn all night we are over the moon to have this crucial figure from queer culture with us at long last please welcome to drama andy, andy mientis hi okay first of all that was truly the nicest um bio intro i've ever gotten like i want you to send that exact copy to my manager because you made me sound really fancy in a way that i have not felt in a really long time and i love that we opened with a rena samiyawa reference i know i'm in good hands because yeah uh, you do you feel safe now i feel really safe i know this is a queer space mm -hmm. and um yeah god stream that album it's the best oh, so good. so good Andy, this is a delight for us. We are so happy to have you here. And I know we were chatting a little bit beforehand, but Connor and I have been what some might say stands for a long time. That's um, thrilling. I don't, I don't <laughs> <laughs> I still can't grapple with, with people, you know, have any, having any idea who I am. It's just, um, will never not be delightful and, and strange. So um, <laughs> that's sweet. Thank you. Of course. Oh my God. Well, welcome to drama. We ask this to all of our guests when we kick off the episode, but Andy, are you well? I would say that I am well. Um, I'm a little hungover today because, you know, it's still a Panderosa and I live upstate. So there's like often not much else to do except have a little too much wine with dinner. Um, I am, this is my like calm before the storm week because um, next week on Monday, I go and bubble up at Williamstown, the Williamstown Theater Festival um, for a show that I am on the creative team of. I'm not performing in, but I am uh, helping to to make um, with our company, The Force of Art, and we're doing a, a two actually immersive theater shows called Alien Nation. It's like a two-part immersive theater epic that's going to be completely wild and, and hugely ambitious. And, um, you know, I can't wait. Uh, and that all gets started next week. We like start in person, rehearse on like doing a show again. So um, this is my last week to like finish my video games, like do my laundry, you know, sleep in my own bed. And then it's going to be like full out, you know, summer theater camp um, for a few weeks. Oh my God. You're, you're suddenly like, wait, I thought I had all this time. I thought quarantine was going to yeah. last forever. And I had all these things on my queue to watch. And now here it is. Now, nope, back to work. Get to it. We left Forest of Arden out of the bio. I'm so sorry. That's fine. That's really fine. Um, it, that's especially fine for like union purposes because the thing we did last summer wasn't a real show, you see. Okay. It was because uh... no one was allowed to do real shows. It was a it was a group of consenting adults getting together to experiment with theater ideas. There were no tickets. There were no formal performances. It, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, this is our first show. So now it's a real thing. Um, I love when consenting adults gather to talk about theater ideas. The, what else could they do in such numbers? You know what I mean? The mind boggles. <laughs> well, and I mean, and the people, the people involved were insane. I mean, of course it was you and your incredible husband, but Mm -hmm. Nikki James was part of it, right? And of course, Nick Adams, friend of the pod. Nick Adams, mm -hmm. um, Krista Rodriguez, 
um, trying to think who y'all would know from like the B way, but there's like a lot of folks from the dance world that are like thrilling that we have Palabalas dancers, we have ABT dancers. It really is like a dance theater company, like Pina Bausche. I actually, the reason why I am a, a creative on this one and not in the cast is that I actually am not like qualified to do what is being asked of our performance. It's very dance heavy this summer. Um, um, so I encourage everyone to go to our website, which I can't recall exactly what it is, but if you Google Forest of Arden Company, it's like something like that. You'll find it and you can see our entire company. There's like 40 people in the company, um, the cats this summer. And they're all gorgeous. They're all gorgeous. This summer, the show is going to have a cast of 38 people. It's like a big old show and it's going to be really exciting. Oh my God. That's like a Les Mis company. Yeah. Massive, totally massive. Yeah. And the photo shoot from last summer was erotic and mysterious. And it was like, it was giving everything that we needed. And it was like right around the time that folklore came out, like maybe even before folklore, there was something in the air. I like to think Taylor was inspired by us. Yeah. I mean, we were a bunch of weirdos playing in the woods. And I think a lot of people retreated to the woods for the pandemic. And um, so, you know, yeah, it felt spiritually connected. Much like Hillary Clinton did after the election in 2016. Uh-huh. She went to Chapa- Chappaqua? Yeah, that sounds like a place Hillary Clinton would go. Yeah, that sounds right. That is where she went. I, I read her, her memoir slash afterthoughts called What Happened? Um, honestly, what an iconic book title. I remember there was one chapter where at the end of it, she's like, what happened? No, honestly, like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I hope we get someday her one woman live version of mm. what happened, like on stage at the booth, <laughs> you know, directed by like mm-hmm. Cheryl Caller. Um, you know, I really see it. I really see the evening. And she has like a guest every night, like Kristen Chenoweth gets up and talks to her about like, what happened? <laughs> I love that. Now, would would Hillary play herself or would we get, say, Alice Ripley to do the job? Oh, my God. Okay, so I think it's funny you mentioned Alice Ripley because I would actually cast Emily Skinner as Hillary. I think she'd make a great Hillary. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. By the way, while we're on Emily Skinner, did you guys see Prince of Broadway? Yes, of course. I did. Who knew that Emily Skinner was our, like, premier Sondheim interpreter? I know. Emily, if you're listening, I was so blown away by her in that show because we just got, it was like this, you know, fabulous little like smorgasbord Mm -hmm. of tunes. Obviously it was like a review and she got to do, we got to see Emily Skinner do Send in the Clowns, Ladies Ladies to Lunch. Did she do it now? You know, she did something from Merrily, right? Yeah, and she did, she did something else from Follies too, I believe. Was it, Could I Leave You? Oh God. Is that what that song is called? I probably blacked out. I mean, that is a song in Follies. (laughs) If she did that, I definitely went into cardiac arrest for 10 minutes, but um. She's unreal. Yeah, she, no, she's unreal. And criminally was underused in the share show. Criminally. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. I just love her. I love her. Yes. We need, she's doing uh, the Muni this summer, I just saw. She's going to be Mama Morton. Okay, I wasn't sure who she yeah. was in that casting announcement. but That's great casting. But Jay Harrison Gee as Velma Kelly. I know. I know. So exciting. That's incredible. I really wish St. Louis was like easier to get to. I know. Um, for me. I know. Well, I'm excited for you to enter the bubble next week. I'm glad that people are still taking the pandemic, or as you called it, the Pandarosa, seriously, because it's it's not fully gone, and like we're not at yeah. herd immunity, and it's nice to know that the performing communities are actually still considering implications of this. Yeah, and we we have double um, double guidelines because we have the AEA guidelines, which are you know new and evolving. Everyone's still figuring out how we actually do this, and we have the show is being performed outdoors in 
many locations, a myriad of locations uh, on the Williams College campus. So we also have the Williams College guidelines. Okay. So we're like, we're an entirely vaccinated company, but we're still all wearing masks while we rehearse. We are bubbling up. We are getting tested like weekly, I believe. We can't hand off props to each other. I mean, it sounds, mm. you know, it sounds excessive, but I'm glad we'll be safe and we won't like give any Williams College students COVID or something. You know what I mean? Like it's it's one of those things where you're like up to your minds about it. But what will your role on the creative team be? I'm the associate director. Amazing. Um, which is a role I've taken on a few times with Michael. Uh, I, it's not what I was doing. We had a great associate director with Spring Awakening and I, you know, I was in the show, so I couldn't do that. But, you know, we created the production together and we were co-directing the workshop and then I got Les Mis and it's a whole other story. But um, oh, okay. that was how that happened. Um, so, you know, I was still doing a lot of like associate directory things after hours, like off the clock, you know, we'd come home and we lived together. And so we'd be like, what do we do about this? And we'd kind of crack the case together. Then I formally, uh, worked with him uh, for the first time on a new musical called Maybe Happy Ending that had its U.S. premiere, English language premiere at the uh, Alliance yeah. uh, in 2019, which I'm hoping you'll hear more from soon. It's an amazing show uh, about robots in Korea in the future. Fun. And uh, and then there's a few other things sort of on the pipeline that I'm, I, I, I quite like it because I don't have any of the skills that he has basically uh, when it comes to the actual like iteration of theater. It's for all of, I mean, I think people look at Michael's productions and they see like the vision, they see the creativity and, but like, if you could see him at a production meeting and see his understanding of like the minutia of like line sets and like the automation, like how the sliders work. I mean, he, his technical brain is so crazy that I would have no idea how to do that. But I think I do have a good alley-oop for the macro vision. Like I can sort of like toss up the ball and he can like put it in the net. That I think was a sports reference. I will never <laughs> do that again. I'm so sorry during Pride Month. <laughs> it was, you, yeah. We don't have them, we don't have them often on drama, but we we relish them. And so I feel very, I, like, I don't know. Someday I hope I direct something myself, but I definitely am not prepared for that right now, but I love being an associate director. So that's what I will be doing on this. I love it. That's so exciting. And you're you're a brilliant visionary. I mean, I got to see you at the Teen Commandments at 54 yeah. Below forever ago. And that was sort of like the seeds of what became Burn All Night, right? Yeah, yeah, that was our, we were like premiering, some tunes from it to just sort of see what people's reaction would be. And honestly, to figure out how to play them live because, mm. you know, the way that they made music, it's not your, t you can't just make charts and have music, you know, like a lot of the sounds are computer sounds. They have to be replicated by computers. And so how to do that live in a room um, mm. was really like, we spent a lot of steps of that process, figuring out the different ways those songs could be, could be produced live in a room. And then how much of that ended up becoming Burn All Night? Oh, quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I think of the songs we did that night, I believe all of them made it into the show. Um, and then the band augmented. Like we, okay. you know, I did that concert just with Teen Commandments. So there were three of them. And then the, our final band for Burn All Nights was more than that. I can't quite remember. But um, was that an ART? It was an ART. Yeah. And okay. Oberon. They're over on space. So cool. Yeah. And of course, I forgot to mention her earlier when we were talking before, but Christina Alabada was a part of that. Another Spring Awakening. She sure was. Ryan. Yeah, another drama affiliate as well. One of my muses, <laughs> frankly. She's the best. She's the best. Did you see her do the uh, the Kerrigan and Loudermilk? I sure did. The Mad Ones. The Mad Ones. Holy belting 
goddess. We told her this, but we saw her do a matinee and she was full out, Andy. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was mm -hmm. like a five show weekend and she was belting to the high heavens. I was fully gagged. I've always been obsessed with her. She was our one of our chairs in uh, the Spring Awakening mm -hmm. tour. And so she she covered Vendla and Ilsa and she covered all the girls. She covered all the girls. Um, but I remember her Vendla and Ilsa because the vocal was just like kapow. You know, yes. like Christy Altamar, our Vendla, she was like a different sound for Venla back then. You know, we were used to like the Leah Michelle, like high octane. And Christy had this like folksy mm -hmm. Joni, like, Joni. you know, mm -hmm. she was kind of laying back in it, which I thought was so cool. But Christina really like would give you that like, that like a ping that, you know. Yeah, we saw, when we saw it in Pittsburgh, when it was like My your hometown, hometown shows, mm -hmm. I remember. And I think our, I remember our parents would always hold a spot for us at the stage door back when we were stage door Sally's. <laughs> and they like ended up meeting your vocal teacher or high school teacher or someone like that in line, like outside. And they like became fast friends. I know who that is. And I am, I can only imagine how that went. That's <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we got to see... Christina go on as Ilsa in Pittsburgh. And it was- I loved her Ilsa. Yes, it was magnetic. It was so yeah. different than Steffi. And I mean, that's the cool, mm -hmm. everyone was so unique in that cast. Yeah. And that's why we beat it to death on this podcast. It's just, everyone was so dynamic. And everyone's like killing it still. Mm -hmm. like, there's like, everyone went on to really do a lot of cool stuff. I'm so proud of that. Like we, it was a really a great, a great group. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel like I have so many questions about your acting credits in particular, but before we dive into them fully, I want to ask you a question. We also ask all of our guests about your ring of keys moment as it pertains to a life in the arts. Do you feel like you had that moment, Andy? I definitely had that moment. And it is also a national tour of a musical. So let me take you back to 1998. I am, how old then? I was born in 86. Someone do the math. I was young. I was like 11 or 12, 12, 12 yeah. probably. Yeah. And I had just done my first show. I played Little League up till then. That was not a fit. Another sports reference. Okay. Jock. I know. Not a fit. I was bad. I was really bad. <laughs> no. Outfield, like uninterested. I would cry. My mom literally had to like lure me to practice um, with Beanie Babies. She would like, <laughs> that's a true story. She would like give me a new Beanie Baby every week that I went to. Because they, they weren't even trying to like make me like butch up or anything. They were just trying to like get me outside and like make friends. But anyway, I a boy on my team became my like best friend and his sister was in this acting program called Act One in Pittsburgh. And I went with them on a Saturday to like paint sets and I made friends and I was like, this is so cool. And my mom was like, aha. And it, you know, let me leave the little league and join mm -hmm. the acting program. And I did Joseph in 1998. It was the first show I ever did, I was Benjamin. And Love it. I'm, so I'm developing an interest in theater. I'm like getting my first little, you know, cast albums or whatever. Cause we were not like a musical theater family growing up. I had seen like, I don't know, probably the film of Tommy, you know what I mean? Like, like my parents weren't interested. They were like, they liked, you know, classic rock and stuff. And there was the national tour of Rent. The first national tour of Rent was coming uh, to Heinz Hall. And the, so this was 98. So at this point it was at like the zenith of its popularity. Oh, yeah. And it was, you know, it had been on the cover of Time Magazine. And I think my parents just knew like, this is important. They didn't quite know what they were buying tickets to, but they're like, this is, he's interested in this. We should take him to like the thing everyone's talking about. And so I saw Rent when I was 12 years old and it like just, my mind exploded because, you know, as I was getting to know theater and know the like repertoire of theater in those early days that, that you know, acting program for children, I was like, learning that rep that you learn, like getting to know you and like all that. So, which was fun, but I wasn't like, you know, my like chest wasn't cracking open yet. And then I saw that and I was like, oh, this is what this can be. Like, this is who this can be. 
and this that was my first time seeing like queer identities being like wait a minute so Maureen was like with Mark and now she's with Joanne but that's cool and like Angel dresses like this sometimes who dresses like this sometimes and the pronouns are kind of fluid and like it just really came at a crucial moment for me and both like gave me a clue about like who I would become and also like what I would want to do and the kinds of shows I would want to do and you know the kinds of shows I would want to make and the you know so that was the the ring of keys moment it makes complete sense that rent is your ring of keys moment it it and I love when it's not just for arts it's for your identity too which is like what it's derived from in fun home it's like truly seeing yourself on stage and knowing that you would you were bi and seeing bi characters and things like that is was probably just truly like the first time you probably ever saw that yeah I tell the story a lot but the first time I ever heard the word bisexual or, or even heard of the concept was um famously beloved and famously homophobic show Friends. Ah, yes. Where Phoebe is singing a like silly song to children. The joke is that she's like singing to children about like, you know, things that are too adult for children to learn about. And she's singing like some men like women and some men like men. And then there are bisexuals that some just say they're kidding themselves. And the audience, the laugh track goes and like everyone laughs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, and like that was like programmed. You know what I mean? Like, oh, like Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a joke. That's a laugh line. And that's not real, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it took years to kind of um, claw my way out of that. But Rent, you know, had to be instrumental in that because Jonathan took those characters seriously. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, seeing where your career would go, that you would be in sort of the second wave Rent production that was Spring Awakening. Everyone cited it as like this new era of that. And then also getting to play sort of a Jonathan surrogate on Smash, and then ultimately being in the Jonathan Larson project. I mean, it, the the connected dots is all there. Well, the gag of it all is like, I remember this day on Smash that Jesse, you know, Jesse L. Martin, who I is now a dear friend because I worked with him on Smash quite a bit and then on The Flash as well. <laughs> oh, um, right. So whenever we're in the same city, we always hang out and he's the best. He's the best. He's exactly who you want him to be. He was on the show and Daphne was recurring. And so there was this table read where I was sat like across from them and I like snuck a sneaky picture like a fan because I was and am and I just couldn't believe and now I'm friends with Anthony I'm like very lucky to know Anthony Rapp and I I just can't believe I like know these people and if I could tell myself when I was you know after I saw that tour of course I then got the cast album that double disc chunker and would listen to it every day and I would follow along in like the big book and Mm -hmm. you know uh, the whole thing for years I mean that was all I was interested in was Rent and I was obsessed with all the casts. I like knew who was in every cast at every moment. Compulsive bowlers, like I was in, you guys. And um, <laughs> yeah, if I could tell myself then like, oh, someday you're gonna like know the original cast, you're going to sing new Jonathan Larson songs on a recording, and you're gonna actually know the Larsons because of that. Yeah, they were there every night. They were there every night. They're sweet, sweet, sweet people. Um, it's just wild. It's one of those moments where you like step back from your own life and you're like, oh, maybe things are all going according to plan. Like even when it feels utterly chaotic, there is some like order in the universe. (laughs) Wow, I never knew your connection to Rent. This makes my experience seeing you in the Jonathan Larson project just that much more special. Oh my God, I feel like Valentine's Day is one of the most haunting, beautiful performances I've ever seen. You you slayed, it was so good. Bless you. Well, it was, it's such a damn good song. And Jen told me that like in her research, she found out that um, a lot, some of those songs were like buried in boxes, you know, like they were just little 
cassette recordings of him. Um, but that one he had actually produced a real demo of, which you can hear on the Larson Sings Larson recording, which I believe might be out of yeah. print, but you can still find it, you know, um, secondhand. He really wanted that one out there. He really believed in it. That's what, He actually wrote it, you know, it's, it's credited a lot as like a cut song from Rent, because it was, he did put it into Rent, but it had been written before that as like just sort of a standalone thing. And then he, he loved it so much that he tried to get it into Rent and it didn't work. And it sort of inspired Mimi's oh, path. Yeah. It, it was like the proto Mimi, um, but he loved that song. And so I felt especially honored to not only get to sing it, but to like record it and have that be the recording of it that really is out there. Just felt like a huge gift and responsibility. And I just like, I remember when we were recording it, you know, we like did two takes and everyone was feeling satisfied, but we had time. They're like, do you want to do it again? And I was like, of course I want to do it again. I want like, I will do the, this is the best song I'll ever sing. Like I want to sing it as many times as you'll let me. So um, I'm very proud of that. Go stream Valentine's Day, everybody. Oh yeah, stream it now, available wherever fine music is found. But I also love SOS. I mean, that to me is like the ending, it becomes very like meta in many ways. Yeah. And you really feel it's, yes, it's about 1984, but I also feel like it's Jonathan. And like, there was just a lot there that was really special. And it was like a re-ring of keys moment for me seeing that show again. Mm. Like you can have them throughout your whole life, you know? And yeah. it, it just reaffirmed my love of the form and just made me very, very sad for all that we we could have seen maybe, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So that tune, I believe, was the oldest in the show because his idea for 1984, the musical, was to have it premiere in 1984. So he wrote all the songs in like 1980, 81, 82, you know, he was writing them like in the years up. And um, he, he sounds so young on the demo. It's really uh, the first time I heard it, I burst into tears because he just sounds so young on that recording. You know, it starts with this like piano arpeggiation that to my ears, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, this sounds like contemporary musical theater at, you know, 54 below. Like this sounds like every young composer is like, and then you realize, like it sounds frankly almost cliche. And then you realize like, oh, he wrote this in the early eighties. Like it's not cliche. He like pioneered that thing. Like mm -hmm. that sound is him. He was doing for the first time. It's just makes you think about what else he would have come up with and, and who he would have worked with, like mm -hmm. who he would have collaborated with moving Ooh. forward, thinking about like our current, you know, writers yeah. and, it's so cool and sad and all the things. Yeah. And I mean, even Lynn Manuel was at, at one of the shows. Like it was, it was such an event. Molly Ringwald was there. Like it was truly mm -hmm. like, it was like the Studio 54 of like the modern day of like <laughs> the celebs that were all there. It felt wild. Yeah. And it happened in Studio 54. So it was like, or in the VIP room, yeah. I should say. All right. I am just going, we could talk about Jonathan Larson forever, but one of the one of the big things we kind of touched on was Smash. And Connor and I, of course, as as everyone else became years later huge smash stands but connor and i did love it when it was on air and it was one of those things that i just felt was unfairly treated at the time and then it became like a cult hit later yeah do you feel like that that was like the experience from the like inside you know i think smash ultimately was a victim of being a cool project in a place that was not the right fit for it i don't you know it was pitched originally as a showtime show uh, and then bob greenblatt brought it over when he moved to nbc you know network tv has to be so many things for so many people. And ultimately, like, not to besmirch the quality of network TV, I love network TV and, you know, lots of very talented people work on network TV, but it's, you know, it's about selling soap and it's about, it's about being accessible and, you know, not too challenging. It just has to reach and appeal to such a broad audience to be successful. Anything that is even a little bit niche tends to fall away because it just, the numbers are so insane. 
like when you look at the the number like who actually was watching smash it was low numbers for network but it's still like millions and millions of people and so when you think about though that number of eyes seeing something about theater and about like the creation of Broadway and the Broadway shows, I mean, not Broadway, the concept, but um, you know, this thing that I think of is incredibly niche and featuring the actors that it featured, like, you know, using a lot of theater actors, people from our world, it's amazing, you know? That's why it was so jarring to like, look at it, you know, when it was coming out and when it was sort of failing, frankly, the, you know, the numbers weren't good enough um, to see it spoken about in that way and then you know a couple years later when I'm doing Les Mis on Broadway and I'm doing the stage show every night having like every single person in the line be like I love Smash what's going on it's like yeah it's still millions of people were into it and I I, I wonder what it would have been had it been on a streamer where it was like you know could be exactly what it was it didn't have to like take all those network notes to try to be this like broad appeal thing. It could be this niche little thing. It, it could have, you know, maintained a smaller audience and been a hit. It was also weirdly at the advent of like watching TV later, like this, right. you know, it was like 2013, right? Something like that. I feel like back then we were like just getting into like DVRing and like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna like catch up on six episodes at a time instead of like, I'm going to tune in on like Friday night or whatever. And I think they didn't know how to like accurately measure who was really watching it. I think like probably more people were watching it than they were aware of. They just were like waiting, they were mm -hmm. recording it and like watching it later. They were binging, you know, they were, so, you know, huh. it was, it was what it was. I, listen, I, I wouldn't have uh, continued on anyway. So uh, for me, no big deal. Well, you never know. Oh my God. So true. You know what? That's, that's a really interesting point because we would we were at co in college at the time and I remember you know catching up on Hulu you know on like three four episodes at a time later on now season two obviously took the it split off from the Maryland musical and we started to see the inception of this off-Broadway turned Broadway hit hit list are you a hit list or bombshell person oh well I've got to be a hit list person a because you know I'm on the team but also um <laughs> Also, because I, people always were like, love to joke about like, what is Hitlist actually about? Like, what is the plot here? What is the, you know, and the, that's not the point. The point is like, in the arc of the story that the show was telling, it was a kind of show. It was like representing a kind of show, not like, it wasn't that important what the show itself actually was. And that kind of show is the kind of show that I am frankly more interested in seeing. It just as an audience member, it's just more my taste. I think that like the bombshell stuff is amazing. I think like, like Megan Hilty's performance of Let's Be Bad is like one of the all time great things ever put on camera. But I still love a like moody pop tune in a black box theater, you know? It's so good. Oh my God. Oh, you know what other Megan Hilty song I absolutely love, or I should say Ivy Lynn's song is the one, I think it might've been in the season two mm -hmm. premiere. They just, just keep, keep moving, moving the, the line. line. Iconic. Oh my God, she she should have won an Emmy for that that scene alone. She was so good. Unreal. You know, if if Smash was on a streamer, I think you know there was an episode where like Marilyn bears it all on stage. They make this like nudity decision. Mm -hmm. I think we would have seen Megan Hilty's tits on on Showtime for sure. That's the Showtime. That's the Showtime of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And then Hit List, you guys took it to fifty four below. Uh huh. Now I know there was some story added in, right? 
was there like a narrator of sorts? I was the narrator. Yeah, I was weirdly playing the narrator because, you know, Kyle obviously was not going to be in the show. So I was just in the show for fun, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think, you know, there was a hunger for it. It was like shortly after the show had aired. I think like Josh uh, and his collaborators, Josh Safran, the showrunner of season two, who, you know, created Kyle and Jimmy and Anna and Hitlist and that whole, all the new stuff for season two was him. I think they wanted to just show people that were like kikiing about like, when is this show? That they did like write a show, that they there was like a story that they knew that just like not enough of it made it onto screen to like be clear to the audience, but like they knew what they were doing and showcase the songs and like have it be a fun party and like cool closure. And we did our live show before Bombshell did their live show. So I just want to say that for the record. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's very true. Hitler's always racing to get there before Bombshell. That was just sort of the narrative. Now, looking back on your filming experience, that what was um, what are some of the memories that stand out from working with Jeremy and Krista and the team? Kat McPhee Foster. Oh my gosh. Kat McPhee Foster. Yeah, it's so many memories. I mean, I first of all, I was terrified. And I'm sure that's very clear if you go back and watch it. I can't because it, it's just be really triggering to me, frankly, because it was my first time. Like I had not y'all even said like, would you like a coffee on television? Like I had not had a single co-star, no like little, nothing, nothing. I'd never booked anything on camera before. And suddenly I am a principal. I am a regular like, you know, lead of a Steven Spielberg show on NBC and I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know, I don't know the difference between stage and camera acting. Not that there's much of one I've learned, but you know, you're told there it's incredibly different. So I'm like trying to watch people, I'm reading, but I remember, I remember I had jury duty like right before we started shooting and I bought like four, like, you know, acting for the camera books and like <laughs> reading books while I'm supposed to be like paying attention to the cases. <laughs> That's horrible to admit. Um, but I, you know, the pressure was just really intense uh, sure. in my own mind, at least, you know what I mean? Um, I also, I had, I have a neurological condition that at the time I hadn't figured out my medicine yet. And so I had severe vertigo the entire time we were shooting. So that was part of it. And I'm sure my anxiety around like my performance and my imposter syndrome was like making it worse because I was just, so like, I literally, the room is spinning while I'm shooting these scenes, which no one would know. Including the bus scene or the car, whatever whatever it ultimately is. Uh, I, I Probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> That's scary. That said, the people were all so lovely that I, you know, that was my sort of anchor the whole time. Like I like, me and Krista and Jeremy became friends very fast. And I like, just would latch onto them and like, get through it, you know? And then all of the like more veteran members of the cast were very kind to me. Like I think of a story about Catherine McPhee Foster where on my first day, my first scene was with her. Like Jimmy is like playing the piano and she comes up and I have like a playbill for her to sign something like that. I remember when we were doing coverage. So they shoot the master, which means like the big wide shot, which feels most like theater, right? The camera's like way over there. You're both in the shots. You're just playing the scene. Then you go into coverage where like the camera is over her shoulder onto me. So she's not really, you know, nothing that she's doing on her face will make it into like, it's, it's my coverage. We're looking at me, right? She, I just remember her whispering to me like, hey, so when we go into coverage, you're going to want to like not 
um, we shouldn't interrupt each other because it'll make it harder for them to edit. So like, let, you know, even if we're supposed to be interrupting each other, just like let the line play because we'll, you know, they'll make it that we interrupt each other in the edit and look at like this one of my eyes. Like if the camera's here, don't like go back and forth between my eyes because your eyes will be like darting back and forth. Just look at this one. She like, without me asking, without like, and that sounds, that actually sounds bad. Like she's like, okay, kid, here's no. your, no, but she no, did, no, I think no, she could no, sense yeah. that I was like freaking out a little bit. She just like very gently gave me some tips that like got me through that day and was very kind. I remember Angelica Houston gave me a Christmas ornament, which made me feel very welcome. I remember <sighs> Deborah was like very sweet. I remember me and Jack Davenport um, bonding over Legend of Zelda. I was like playing a Zelda game on my 3DS. And he's like, you can play that handheld now. Like I, I used to love to like run around that on the N64. Anyway, it was like oh. the people were very kind <laughs> and, um, that's what I remember most. The rest of it, I kind of was blacked out for, um, frankly. I love that answer. Well, I, I feel satisfied. I feel very satisfied knowing some of those behind the scenes tidbits because Smash is very important to a lot of people. As you know, you, you mentioned that niche things don't really last. I mean, we just saw it with Zoe's Extraordinary yeah. Playlist, which I haven't gotten to yet, but two seasons and, yeah. and that's it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, uh, it it is what it is. Like, And it makes you wonder, that there are the shows that exit before their time. And then there are the shows that maybe linger a little longer than they should have. And it's like, what is yeah. the sweet spot of like really telling the story you want to tell, you know? I think Insecure is going to hit the sweet spot. In its fifth season, Insecure is going to nail it. I really do feel that way. Yeah. They, they haven't stumbled yet, so. Okay, Andy. So we've talked about your husband, Michael Arden, throughout. But I'm curious, because I, I truly don't know the story, but how did you guys meet? Yeah, um, so we met... Gosh, it's foggy in my memory exactly how we met, but I know that when I was in college, he was dating briefly Benj Pasek, who I went to school with, who was a good friend of mine, because when I came in, people said that Benj and I looked alike, and we were both very much interested in the same, like, contemporary musical theater, you know, cutting edge sure. stuff of the time of, like, the mid-aughts, and uh, so we really became friends quickly, me and Benj, and so I remember... I also saw, y'all, I was a fan. Like I saw, I saw Big River. I saw oh, wow. um, Bear. Uh, and I like remember like early days of YouTube watching like him in Secret Garden and like, you know, I oh, yeah. was Michael Arden. He was, had a great voice and, you know. And so when he like came around campus, I was like, ooh, you know. Um, then we like friended each other on Friendster. Oh, wow. And like chatted a couple times Wait. then. Um, then we met in person, properly met in person, when he was doing The Times They Are Changing on Broadway, the Twyla Tharp, Bob Dylan, you know, legendary fiasco. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, he would say, I mean, you know, uh, affectionately. Yeah. Forgotten to history, kind of. A little forgotten to history. Although yeah. there was one really beautiful moment that I hope exists somewhere, maybe it's on YouTube or something, where like he was sitting on a moon singing Tambourine Man while an incredible dancer whose name I can't remember, which is horrifying, but um, danced like below him. It was this like kind of really simple little beautiful that tambourine mom moment was was beautiful my college roommates took a semester off to be a swing in that show because he could do like acro and stuff and he actually covered michael and um for whatever reason his family couldn't come to the opening night so our two or me and my other best friend we were like a little trio these three three guys in college um me and my buddy max um were carrie carrie was the guy were his opening night dates to the times they are a change in and i remember 
I remember desperately his Michael's dates to the times they changed in opening was Leah and Michelle because they were friends. Oh wow. And I remember really trying to I really wanted to get Leah's number. A reveal. Frankly, I can reveal exclusively. I was really like <laughs> following her the party. Um, but you know, Michael and I, we had like spoken on friends from sure I like sent him a message like I loved you and Bear, you know, like something like that. And he knew that me and Benj were close and he knew about care. So anyway. Uh, right when we were like getting ready to leave, I remember us catching sight of each other and Michael being like, oh, it's you. Like, we know each other, you know? And we like had this quick little, you know, hello. I remember exactly what he was wearing. He's wearing this like gray and pink, like striped suit. Then like the show, I remember like a week later when they announced the show was closing, I wrote him an email or like a friend's message or something. Like, I'm so sorry. I really thought you were great in it. And, you know, uh, I know you'll do something else. And um, so we stayed like kind of digital friends. And then we really reconnected when I was doing Spring Awakening at the Amundsen. He was doing Deaf West's Pippin at the same time at the Mark Taper Forum, which is in the same complex. And so- I didn't know they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you can find, there's material from that online. You should check it out. It's very, very cool. So we, you know, reconnected then. And then he, when I was doing a nymph show, um, May She Rest in Peace, New York Musical Theater Festival, I won a, uh, a performance award for like a show that I did and Michael presented it to me. And um, that night was our first kiss. And then, um, wow. yeah. Andy, you've given me so much to ponder in this entire <laughs> conversation. It's, I say this on the podcast all the time, but that's a true Taylor folklore, invisible string moment here right we did keep like yeah we kept we sort of kept butting up into each other especially like even had we not met then like then when they were working on the revival of bear like i did the workshops in his role you know what i mean like it just was inevitable we just kept like meeting each other i love it so much and then i feel like when you got married you were like on an english countryside with gus kenworthy or something is that true (laughs) <laughs> that is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, we got married in England um, because we just wanted to make it as expensive and inaccessible as possible for all of our friends. No, we got we got married where we got engaged. Both Michael and I don't have a lot of family, um, like actual blood related family um, for various reasons. And so we were sort of able, like I had uh, two people that I was blood related to at the wedding. Michael had zero. Uh, and so our wedding guests were mostly friends and like chosen family and you know it was small and it was like very young very like you know there was there were like no like in obligation invites it was all like people we wanted there and um so we sort of took a poll we were like would you guys want to come to like England if we did this thing and they were like yes absolutely and so it ended up being this like you know crazy adventure um it was amazing and, and yes Gus Kenworthy was there <laughs> you know, not everybody has that at their wedding, so I don't know how that can be topped. I mean, he was a plus one, I'll say. No, he's he's a sweet okay. guy. He's a friend, and I, <laughs> I, I haven't seen him. I miss him, and I love him. Uh, That's hilarious. Oh my God. And then, of course, you and Michael ultimately would, would mount what was many say is just like the most definitive production of Spring Awakening. It, it changed the game. And to many of us who, who might not have seen Big River or were familiar with Deaf West, it was this whole new world. And some said, you know, sometimes revivals happen very quickly, like a glass menagerie, some, you know, mm-hmm. or a gypsy. But with Spring Awakening, a show that sort of shuddered during the, the big recession, uh-huh. this was this new life for a show that. It, it, it felt like this was how it should have been all along. And so I just want to applaud you for conceive, co-conceiving this revival to happen. Thanks. I mean, I will say as someone that did both productions, I 
we very much stood on the shoulders of Michael Mayer's production that like I, in now working with Michael and working on my own projects of like new shows, you just run out of time. You know what I mean? Like you, um, I, I think about the miracle of the Michael Mayer production in that like, not only was he making that amazing staging with all those iconic images of like Ilse at the microphone and the bars and the neon, like all of it, mm -hmm. but they were also like writing it at the same time. Not only was he deciding like how to do the show, he was like, what is the show? Like what, how do I direct yeah. the writers? How do you know, like that is, hard and a huge part of the job that's why like the best director tony traditionally goes to like a director of a revival like in recent years it's been going more to new musical directors but the work is so mm -hmm. much more apparent in a revival right because you can you know right. the show and you're like what did the director do to it oh wow but in a new musical it's very unclear like what is the writing what is the design what is the direction blah 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 blah, blah. um so all we had to do was like take this thing that was done and like figure out what we wanted to do with it. So we, you know, uh, all this to say that I think, I really appreciate you saying that, but I also am very fond of, of you know, the original production and um, oh, yeah. it was just a great show. And I, you know, I, I'm sure some people thought it was too soon. I think a lot of people were really horrified that this show that they thought of as being like, it just happened. And I'm, I, I think like when shows get revived that you saw the original of, you feel really old. Like I've had this experience now <laughs> as I'm now in my like 10th year plus of being in the business of like, oh my God, I'm, I have those experiences now. Like I saw the original Color Purple and I saw the revival and like, there you, go. you know, um, <laughs> um, that's, it's surreal. And I think for a show about youth, that was very surreal for people. But, you know, I'm a big advocate for like, I never think it's too soon to have a revival of anything. I think if there's a production that feels worthy and people want to put it on stage, let's do it. Like, I think there's this misconception among people that are fans of Broadway, but haven't like been close to the machinations of it, that like there is some organization called Broadway with a capital B that like makes decisions about what they're pro yes. like, oh, they're doing a revival of Spring Awakening. They just did that. That's not how it works. Every show is its own individual LLC. It is literally just like if there is, if someone makes something and someone wants to pay for it and there's a theater available, then it's a Broadway show. And that's the only difference right. between a show that is a Broadway show and isn't a Broadway show. And there's a lot there. There's a lot to be said um, that goes along with that statement about the difference between what is a Broadway show and what isn't a Broadway show and oh, who yeah. is making Broadway shows and blah, blah, blah. Um, but we just got real lucky and um, suddenly mm -hmm. we were doing a Broadway show, but people always bemoan how many gypsies there are. And it's like, it's gypsy. If there's like an amazing actor that wants to play Rose, know, they're all iconic. and someone's gonna pay for it, yes. I will watch gypsy every day. Mm -hmm. Gypsy is perfect. Like give me, give me every oh, yeah. Mama Rose we can have. Give me Billy Porter as Mama Rose. Yes. yes. Did you see the video of Billy doing, um, <laughs> is it everything to my roses or at the, at the commercial break of the 20s? Was that the 20s? Like 20, I'm yes. Incredible. So I need the full production right now. Yeah. Yeah. So fun. That was amazing. I loved. Yeah. Well, you know, I was taking an American Sign Language class. Well, I guess three classes at the time when I saw the Broadway revival of Spring Awakening. And I remember being extra excited because I had some awareness of ASL and being in the audience and looking around me and seeing so many audience members communicating with each other in American Sign Language. Oh my God, I literally just got a chill right now because it, <laughs> it, it, it felt like such an event. I had not been to a Broadway show in I don't know how long where people were coming to the theater that may not always come to the theater because it was it was for everyone, but especially for them. They could experience it in their own way. I mean, I, anyway, thank you to you all for that production because it was so special and so many moments from it just 
still live on in my brain, especially that moment of Krista at the end of I Don't Do Sadness, Blue Wind. It was yeah. just really amazing, mm -hmm. the scream, but the sound scream. Absolutely loved. <laughs> really quick before we start to wrap up here, was Les Mis your Broadway debut? It sure was. Yeah, it was my Broadway debut. Oh my God. Yeah. How exciting. Did you have a good experience doing that show? I did. It was really hard. It was a really hard show to do. It was, I will say famously, and people can agree with me or not, but I would say not in my wheelhouse. I was very surprised, frankly, that like when I was moving my way through the audition process and then ultimately was cast, I never, I didn't grow up with that show. I didn't, like, I remember on our first day of rehearsal, just like everyone knew it already. They knew, and I was like, what are, have you been there tonight? You must know how it, like I had to plunk out and like record, like, like I didn't know the show at all. And I didn't think of my voice as like, I can like do that thing, you know, like I, I don't sing like that. Um, so I was really like having to put that on. So there was like that element of me just like feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so different for me. And then it's just, it is like three hours long. Marius is, I can say this confidently because I know I was told by stage management has the most on stage time of anybody um, when you <laughs> like ensemble stuff and Marius stuff combined. Because he's in, I mean, once he's introduced, he's really in like every scene. Like it's all kind of from his point of view, a lot of it. Um, oh, yeah. And so like there were very few breaks and the guns weighed like 50 pounds and the barricade, like I was also in in like four inch or like I was in heels for that show because Kyle Scatliff who played Andras is six, six oh, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. He's enormous and I looked <laughs> like his squire. And so they put me in big heels for that. And it was really hard, but you know, those actors, that cast was so incredible. You know, Nikki James became one of my best friends in the world, my like ultimate muse. I learned so much from Casey, from Kyle, from Will and Ramin and Kayala. And like, I mean, it, it was just such a dream team and just such a beautiful time. I'm really missing like that feeling. Cause you know, I, since then I did like Spring Awakening, which was a limited run. And then I did, I did Wicked for like six months, but I haven't been in something that long since then. That feeling of like having the show be what it is and it, you know, like every performance is alive, but like the, the material is the same, but like the, the people change, like that feeling of like, oh, today this person's on, how exciting, or today I don't feel so good, but I'm gonna push through. Today someone brought donuts, today it's someone's birthday. That experience of living with a show for a year is really something special and something rare. And I hope I get to do it again because um, I'm missing that like consistency and just like having that family, having that like, I'm signing in and here we go, we're doing, we're doing the thing, maybe even twice mm -hmm. today, you know? You will, you will. Oh, I love that. That, that. that made me feel so nostalgic for like the Broadway of, you know, five or six years ago, yeah. maybe maybe longer at this point. And, and I know we'll get back to that soon. And and I have a feeling we'll see you on the board. I hope so. I'm very available if feeling. you're listening out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we all thought that that the Who's Tommy was going to was gonna make some moves. Oh, that's, we'll talk off podcast. Okay, okay, that. okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's drama. That's drama, Andy. Okay, so we are wrapping up. I feel like I could talk to you forever about truly everything you've ever experienced yeah. in your life. But we like to end on a dose of drama. Here's mine. It's Pride Month, okay. and there's a new album that was just released by this artist named Vincent, and mm -hmm. everybody needs to stream it. There is this incredible song featuring Alex Newell, actually, called Higher. Oh, my God. It's been, it's been my Pride anthem, so stream Vincent's new album because it is it, and the vocals are just there. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So good. Have you heard Vincent, y'all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So good. My dose is that we did some Pride celebrations over the weekend, 
And, you know, I saw this tweet go around from some like hot gay who was like, remember during pride, you can still be nice to someone you don't want to fuck. And, you know, I had a friend who was just casually talking to someone and the guy looked at him and said, I'm not talking to you and looked away. And I thought, Ooh, come on now. Like, we, oh, come on. Like must get rid of toxic. Yes. In the yes. There we go. <laughs> must. And so just reminder y'all be nice. Like we're, we're out of this pandemic together. Well, almost. And, and just, just be kind. Like we, we can all be to get pride is about being together and celebrating ourselves. No mean gays at pride. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. What can I leave us with? I was watching for the second, I was doing my, my second watch last night of Girls 5 Eva. Oh my God. Mostly this time for Paula Pell's performance. She is so goddamn funny on the show. So genius. And I was like, I, I have imposter syndrome all the time and I, I nothing is more like humbling than seeing someone who is like not an actor be like the best actor you've ever seen. And you're like, well, I shouldn't have gone to school. Like, why did I do that? <laughs> um, Sarah Bareilles mm-hmm. is an actor. Fully. She's a great actor. She is subtle and funny and connected. And I'm like, I could never do what she's doing <laughs> on that show. I like, I am not that comedy queen. I wish I was, but she is, she kills it. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel really untalented. So Sarah, thank you for that. (laughs) You can do everything. Let's get her Fontaine. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? Can you absolutely imagine? Wait a minute. Yeah. Oh my God. Andy, why aren't you a casting director? Well, you know, casting is a queer um, superpower that we all possess. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not singular in my ability to cast, but that's yes, fair. That, that is a piece that I would like to see. Oh my God. We didn't even get to talk about you on the flash, but we loved you on that. They just brought you back again, right? Yeah. I was in the last, I did two episodes in the last season, not the current season that's airing, but the season before, mm-hmm. um, pre Pandora, season six, I believe. And I would love it. I used to be very, you know, cagey about expressing my desire to be on the show more, but now I say... <laughs> Fuck it. I I would love to be on the show more, but obviously they have a lot of stories to tell. They, do. they need to do what they're going to do. But I, every time I get to play with them, it's such a great time. I love that character. He's like a quippy, pithy, gay hero villain um, who wears all black. He's like spooky. I mean, it's like truly my dream role. Um, so <laughs> anytime they will have me, I will come running if anyone's listening from the flash. Oh, they, they definitely are. You know it. So listen, Andy, <laughs> this has been a treat and a half. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I do have one last question. I'm just curious what pride means to you. Oh man. Pride means to me, you know, I think the experience of being out and queer, um, at least for my generation, a lot of the time takes effort. It's onerous. You know what I mean? It's work. It's like that moment when you get in the Uber and the driver asks about your girlfriend and you try to like pitch your voice down and you make that split second decision of like, am I going to be myself or am I going to like cover up because of some perceived safety threat, you know, like that thing Mm -hmm. that you're kind of aware of all the time. Like, can I hold my husband's hand in this neighborhood or not? Can I wear this thing out and make it home on the subway? Like blah, blah, blah. Pride is a time where it is not just, you know, a, a struggle, but it's a celebration. It's a time to like f- find your folks and um, revel in, in that thing instead of just being brave enough to, to do it. When I think of pride, I think of relaxing. I think of being like, ah, getting into like a bath of safety of like, this is, I, see, I feel seen, I feel supported, I feel surrounded by my my chosen queer family. I love that. I love it. Thank you, Andy. You you yeah. are amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us. Everyone needs to follow Andy on Twitter and Instagram at Andy Mientis. Very easy to find you. Very easy to find me. Oh, my God. Give him that follow and follow us at The Drama Podcast. Me at Connor McDowell, Dylan at Dylan McDowell. Andy, we love you. Five of a... Mm-hmm. And do you, Andy, do you, did, lastly, did you have anything you wanted to plug or, or share? 
it's going to be announced any minute now. I sent in all the materials, but I don't know if um, it'll be public yet or not by the time you air. But I have written another novel, um, this time a YA novel. So this is different from Backstagers. This is a brand new story. It is the length of all three Backstagers put together and then some. It's like a proper like chonker book called Fraternity, uh, which is going to be published by Abrams in this, the fall of 22. It's a queer, paranormal kind of coming of age historical fiction story uh, about queer boyhood. Uh, and I'm really proud of it. And um, I, I'm excited to talk more about it when I can. Everyone, thank you again. Follow Andy, follow us, follow Drama. Connor, we'll see you next time. Drama. Drama.